Hi, I'm James. And I'm Liv. And this is the Criminal Maze podcast. And today we will be talking with Oliver Kirk, who is a barrister at Five St Andrews Hill Chambers in London. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me on. And you are a barrister. That's right. Um, I'm a barrister at a um, set of chambers in London. Um, but just because I'm in chambers in London doesn't mean I practice in London. I practice mostly at the southeast, but also further away. Um, and I both prosecute and defend, but most of my practice involves um, defending over the last 20 odd years, during which time I've been both a solicitor and a barrister. Fantastic. We're going to ask you later on about uh, prosecution work you do. Um, but if we start, you mentioned then uh, that you have been a solicitor and a barrister. So I, I too, I have high rights of audience, a uh, solicitor advocate. So if you could explain, why did you decide to become a solicitor? Um, I became a solicitor um, back in 1996, that's when I qualified. Um, I had been to um, Manchester Metropolitan University, it was actually Manchester Polytechnic at the time, um, and came out. I remember. Um, and um, I left there just as Black Wednesday hit. Um, and all my ideas of um, being able to go off and work in Europe doing commercial law. Um, came crashing down around my ears as um, big commercial firms um, simply stopped taking on significant numbers of trainees. And so um, I spent a long time looking for a training contract, but managed to get one in a small high street firm in Ramsgate, right down in the southeast of England. Um, and um, I started off doing criminal work and it was incredibly satisfying. Um, it was great to be able to advise people and help people who I thought needed my help um, and to be able to speak for them in court. Um, and I fairly quickly realized that um, that was something I was far more interested in doing than um, commercial work, which can be very dry and, um, uh, and perhaps satisfying in a different way it's exceedingly well paid but um I, I suddenly thought to myself i found my calling um and i very much liked um standing on my hind legs in court and representing people i think we're probably both quite biased in that criminal law is the most interesting area of law yeah of course <laughs> it is um i need to, uh, being a criminal lawyer basically is a can be a license to be nosy you hear about the most appalling things that people do to each other and how, how, do you, how do you feel? Because I, I get asked quite a lot, how do I represent people that are clearly guilty? Is that something that you get asked? It, well, it is something. It's the, the classic question. Um, and nobody sort of asks the obvious opposite question of prosecutors. How do you prosecute someone who you think is innocent? Um, the, the fact of the matter is, and I learned this very early on, that it, it's quite important not to start judging your client. It's very... Um, counterproductive. It means you can't really be objective. And um, of course, you should look very closely at what your client says and whether it's credible and, um, and whether there's evidence to support their account. If you go around forming a view that your client is guilty, um, you may end up um, effectively being involved in a, in a terrible miscarriage of justice. Do you do you find then it's a, it's kind of an academic question to think that, well, everybody's innocent? Well, I'm, that, that isn't academic. That is exactly the approach of um, 
of, of the courts. Um, and, you know, the way I address a jury in a speech, um, if I'm defending, is um, even though um, you have seen the defendant sitting in a dock and the very first thing you've heard about him is all these horrible things he's alleged to have done, you have to start on the with the presumption of innocence. So start your deliberations in assuming or presuming that the defendant isn't guilty and then ask yourself whether or not the prosecution have proved it and if they have proved it, have they made you sure? Um, that's a, a helpful way of, of, of approaching it. Um, but equally, as you say, there, it is slightly academic because very often by the time I get hold of a case, um, the defendant has already been interviewed. They may have made admissions. Um, and it would be completely absurd for me to go around automatically assuming that people who have confessed um, are innocent. Obviously, I will check with them that their confession was a true one and that they haven't uh, admitted things to try and get somebody else out of trouble or for whatever reason. But um, if you are um, instructed in a case where somebody is denying it, um, then that is what you run with. And, um, and you look at what the prosecution can prove and whether they have admissible evidence and so on. So what, what, made, you, what made you decide to become a solicitor advocate? I discovered literally on the very first day that I was a solicitor advocate and I was sent to Canterbury Magistrates Court to do a trial where I received the papers in the morning that actually trial advocacy was something I really enjoyed. Um, and over a period of time, um, the position went from no solicitors could appear in the Crown Court to more and more solicitors were getting what are called higher rights of audience that um, permit solicitors to appear in the Crown Court and indeed Court of Appeal. And um, so I decided that I would um, apply for those high rights of audience. I got them about 10 or 11 years ago now and um, have exercised them an awful lot ever since. So what is the transfer then from becoming or being a solicitor advocate to becoming a barrister? You, you need to make an application, first of all, to uh, be called to the bar Um uh, one of the ends of court, um, and you make an application also to the Bar Council for um, exemption from pupillage, or that's, what I, that's the way I did it. And um, if you didn't have the same level of experience, you simply make an application to um, be, be allowed to practice at the Bar, um, and um, the Bar Council will then either say that you have to do a 12-month pupillage or a 6-month pupillage or, uh, as in my case, no pupillage at all. But I, I am supervised for three years just to make sure that um, I'm, I'm uh, adjusting appropriately, if I can put it like that. Um, and so, yes, it, it was a relatively straightforward process, um, one that I have to say I kept putting off, um, but uh, I got there in the end. I'm very pleased I did. And, and it's, it's completely optional for a solicitor advocate to wear a wig, isn't it? So just wondering, did you decide to wear a wig? I did decide to wear a wig, um, partly because I thought that it would be a distraction if I didn't. Um, and I know that different, different people have different views. Um, they're, they're, the first solicitor advocate I saw in action um, was fairly early on in my career, actually, and, and he didn't wear a wig. Um, and he was brilliant. In fact, he's now transferred to the bar. Um, and I thought to myself, you're allowed to wear a wig, you should, because it, 
otherwise you sort of stick out like a bit of a sore thumb in a business. It it then becomes about you and people wondering, well, why isn't he wearing a wig? You know, perhaps he's got some sort of horrible um, scalp infection, which of course is why wigs came in in the first place. But anyway. um... Well, I was going to ask, why why do barristers wear wigs and gowns? Well, it's um, historical, um, of course, um, and it um, goes back to the time when everybody wore such things. Um, and it is thought that um, that it provides a certain anonymity mm. to court proceedings. So judges wear wigs and uh, and gowns, and uh, barristers do uh, as well. And um, they don't necessarily wear them in all proceedings. Nowadays, we don't have to wear them when we're appearing on a video link hearing, except in the Court of Appeal. Um, but um, I am a, a big fan of it because um, it, it does make people look very anonymous. It, it mm. is quite possible sometimes to walk past a member of the bar who you've seen wearing a wig and not recognize them when they are not wearing their wig. Um, but and it does um, also look completely archaic and um, particularly in looking at a lot of the modern courtrooms that we have, you do feel slightly ridiculous um, walking around with uh, what looks like a dead sheep on your head um, <laughs> and wearing a, a, a gown that would be more at home in sort of Pride and Prejudice times. But um, and I, I, it, it sort of almost feels when you put it on like it's a sort of suit of armour. Yeah. I wonder as well, perhaps as a benefit, because you do form this bridge between your client but then remaining an officer of the court, so you aren't you need to make the distinction between yourself and a lay person, perhaps? Yes, I think so. No, that, that's definitely um, part of the, it, it's um, in academic circles refer, referred to as the semiotics of, uh, of the law, isn't it? Where we're all sending out signals as to who we are. Uh, and it also has to do with public perception. Um, and um, I've recently been appearing in one of the Nightingale courts, which have been set up to try and cut down the backlog. And so I've been appearing in, in a Marriott hotel wearing a wig and gown, which, again, feels slightly absurd. Um, there you are in a room that is normally um, used for things like weddings, um, conducting a serious criminal trial. And I think that wearing a wig and gown in those circumstances actually reinforces the solemnity and importance of the proceedings. It's easy to forget as a lawyer that what you're doing in court will probably be one of the most important days of somebody's life. It can literally be the difference between um, whether they go to prison and never work in their chosen field again or um, whether they don't go to prison or are found not guilty. Uh, these are life-changing moments. And um, you don't want people wearing fancy ties or distracting suits or silly haircuts. Um, it's, it's a good leveler to have everybody wearing that uniform so that people are concentrating on the evidence in court rather than on extraneous matters. And if you were able to speak to your younger self or a law student starting out, would you recommend the route you took to the bar or would you suggest a pupillage? Um, that's a, an interesting question. Um, I, 
when I started out, um, I simply did not think that I was the sort of person who would be able to go to the bar because I hadn't been to um, Oxford or Cambridge um, or uh, and I hadn't studied law at um, one of the leading universities. And the idea that I could have become a barrister, I would have found quite surprising. Um, however, um, over time, of course, the um, the makeup of the, of the criminal bar has, has changed. Um, and that is for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, um, society has changed and the, the bar is much more open and diverse than it used to be. Um, but also um, a lot of um, the bar have, have moved on from crime. And the reason for that is that fees have remained pretty much static since I qualified, um, which is pretty extraordinary, given that that was now a quarter of a century ago. Conversely, do you think that because the wages have stagnated for so long, sometimes I've well, I've read some some people's view on it where it's been that you need to have a kind of private income in order to start out now, or as a pupil in London in particular. I qualified in a different world. I I went to a polytechnic and um, had a full grant. I was able to take out a student loan my last year, which was £500, and that was the maximum amount I was allowed to borrow. Students now are coming out, particularly on the end of the um, bar professional course and, um, and solicitor's equivalent, are the wrong end of about £60,000. Um, and to spend all of that money, invest all of that money in your future to discover that um, as a solicitor, you might be earning less than £30,000 for most of your career is really unacceptable. Um, and I, I think a lot of people, although they're very motivated to go into crime, because it is, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's exciting. If it isn't paying the mortgage, then you can't do it. Of course. And if, if you take a case from the start to finish, um, if a solicitor phones up your chambers and asks to instruct you, um, how does that process start? Well, um, the uh, clerks um, will obviously have a look at the um, barrister's diary and see whether they're going to be available for the initial hearing or the sentencing hearing or whatever it is and look at availability generally. Um, as you all know, we're not allowed to refuse cases because of what's called the cab rank rule, but that is subject to being available and indeed subject to being it being a case that we feel um, adequately qualified to deal with. Um, so sub subject to that, I would then get a telephone call from my clerk telling me that um, such and such a solicitor had wanted to instruct me in such and such a case and we've put it in the diary. Um, and then it's a question of receiving the papers or the invite to the digital case from the solicitors, looking at the papers um, and um, arranging then uh, perhaps initially for a discussion with the solicitor about the case without the client so that we just get a feel of um, the general direction of travel and then um, no doubt having a conference with the clients discussing the various options and preparing either for a trial or preparing for um, sentence.
And when you have your initial meeting with the client, are you quite candid in terms of their chances and likely sentence? Well, I think it's very important um, to be as direct and unmistakable in your advice as possible because I'm afraid that a lot of people charged with criminal offences do like to, um, as it were, only hear what they want to hear. And um, by the time they get into a criminal trial, it's it's too late. Um, so um, I like to give early and um, I hope realistic advice, both about um, the strengths and weaknesses of the prosecution case, but also um, what might happen if things go wrong. And have you ever had to advise a client that you can't represent them if they've come to you and said, oh, I've, I've committed this offence, I'm going to plead not guilty? Um, that um, has happened, actually, um, but it's pretty rare. Um, in fact, it happened to me more as a solicitor than it has as a barrister, um, uh, in particular in police stations where somebody might say, oh, well, this is what happened, but I'm going to tell the police this, uh, at which point you have to say, well, no, either you tell the police nothing or you tell the police what happened, but I'm not here to help you lie. And if, if that is what you're going to do, then you'll have to get yourself another lawyer. And it's right that if a, if a client says to you, I've committed this offence, but I want to plead not guilty. They can still run the trial, but not put forward a positive defence. So it's letting the prosecution prove their case. That's exactly right, yes. And have you ever been in that situation in court? Yes. Um, and um, in, in cases where the um, prosecution case simply wasn't, uh, as it were, strong enough. Um, so you can't call your client to give evidence. Um, you don't advance a positive case, but you ask the jury or the, or the magistrates whether they are sure that the prosecution has proved its case. And sometimes um, that means that someone who in fact is guilty, who hasn't given evidence, will be found not guilty because the prosecution haven't proved it. It's not the defendants got away with it, it's the prosecution who haven't proved the case. Hmm. And... Sorry to jump ahead, because I know we are going to come back and talk about your work as a prosecutor, but I'm just curious, have you ever been in a position where you have been prosecuting and felt the evidence um, is, is, a, is such a weakness that you found it almost quite challenging to put forward the case? Well, I'm, in any case, you get papers and you read them and you think, oh, this witness has said A, B and C, and then they go into the witness box and they say something completely different. And if you're defending, you think, well, this is wonderful. If you're prosecuting, you don't think this is wonderful. <laughs> um, you, and you feel that the, the, your carefully crafted um, opening uh, submissions to the court falling apart in your hands. Um, you know, it, 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 it's part of the job. Um, but also, yes, um, I'm asked to advise on cases quite frequently as to whether or not there's a reasonable prospect of conviction. Um, and um, you know, you like to try and give uh, realistic advice about about that, um, looking at the evidence in, in the round. And if you're sent a case by the prosecution uh, by the CPS and asked to prosecute it, and you would get it on the morning of the trial, um, and you look through the papers, and you feel that it is a weak case, is it? putting that to the prosecutor and asking them to review it, or do you ask them to discontinue it? 
Well, you have a discussion with the reviewing lawyer, assuming you're able to get rid of them, um, <coughs> phone, um, and you say, look, look at this, where is this piece of evidence? Where is that piece of evidence? Um, is this really an ABH or is it a common assault? Um, looking at the, the various different elements that you have to prove, and you then have a, 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 a I hope, constructive conversation as to what the likely outcome is going to be. And sometimes that will be, um, we don't have a realistic prospect of conviction and therefore we're going to offer no evidence, or that um, we decide to prefer a lesser charge, or indeed on occasion, um, a more serious charge. And if you are advised to run it, does it change how you um, approach the case as a prosecutor? Um, no, I think you, you still you, you follow your instructions, but you, you, are, you have to be fair. And that's the most important thing, it seems to me, if you're prosecuting, is that you should be unimpeachable in terms of your approach. And so you should not over-egg the omelette. You should not um, make unfair points or anything like that at all. Um, because, well, I mean, it's obvious. It's very important, and you don't want somebody being convicted or um, on on a false uh, basis. And I, I found over the last ten years, prosecution cases, uh, you find more and more pieces of evidence missing or things that haven't been investigated properly. Are you finding the same um, as a prosecutor or, or defending? Well, I, I, it, it's the bread and butter of defence work, isn't it? Pulling apart prosecution cases and shoddy investigations and um, pointing out the whole... Uh, in, in any uh, defence speech at the end of a trial, there's always a list of stuff that the prosecution should have done and haven't. Um, and when you're prosecuting again, you're trying to spot the things that about which the defence will say that and say for the... Um, reviewing lawyer or the police officer, look, you need to go and get some evidence about this fact, because at the moment what we've got isn't, isn't really going to stand up, or um, you've only got hearsay evidence dealing with this point at the moment, and so on. Um, can we firm this up or not? Or just looking to see whether there are um, further, further inquiries that can be made that will either um, prove or disprove the allegation. And it's not a question of trying to make sure the indictment stays as it is. It's a question of um, investigating. Um, can I ask, whether you're a prosecutor or defending, you mentioned sometimes you have a witness takes the stand and they aren't answering the way that you might expect them to. Um, if that happens, what, what are your options? <laughs> Well, if you're if you're prosecuting and your witness does that, um, then you are allowed um, to show them their previous statement that they will have made to the police, um, and um, politely remind them of what they said earlier. Um, you can only do so though in um, in chief, so not asking leading questions. And do you, do you feel your work as a prosecutor has helped your defence? It has, because um, it allows you to see things from the other side and to know in more detail how the um, police procedures and CPS procedures work. And I think it therefore allows you, for example, to make more effective representations to the, to the CPS do you think it helped you um, having started doing police station work as well, seeing that side of the investigation? 
definitely. And it, it is, I, I feel that I'm in a, not uniquely, but a very privileged position um, now as a barrister, having spent a long time as a solicitor and having spent um, many hours of my life stuck in police stations and advising suspects. Um, a lot of members of the bar have never been in a police station custody area at all. Um, and um, I think it's quite helpful that I have been. And, um, and that, that also means um, in terms of empathising with, with my clients, that I'm, um, I've got a bit more insight into, um, into what things have been like for them. And you mentioned earlier about uh, funding and legal aid cuts, and how how's that affected your practice? Well, when I was a solicitor, it uh, affected my practice hugely. Um, the lack of increased levels of remuneration, coupled with procedural changes that meant that there was far less work being done in magistrates' courts, um, meant that um, it felt like it was death by a thousand cuts. Um, and um, you had to constantly um, try to increase the volume of cases you were dealing with in order to maximise the amount of um, fee income. Um, but the real fundamental problem was the fixed fee um, regime which was introduced, um, which as it as the name of it indicates, um, means you get paid exactly the same amount of money for do doing a case, no matter how much work you do on it. Um, and it really shouldn't take a genius to work out that that rewards the indolent and lazy and punishes people who do a good job. Um, and um, in fact, that was one of the reasons that I chose to get out of being a solicitor. <laughs> um, what, what would happen to you if you were given the case and you prepared it for trial and you turned up to court the next day for it to be adjourned and then the relisting date you weren't able to do and had to pass it on to a colleague? Um, uh, I would be rather frustrated and the reason I'd be rather frustrated is that I would be paid probably something like £150 for doing all the preparation um, and I'm afraid that with the vast COVID backlog of cases this sort of thing is happening more and more um, cases are being called on with no um, regard at all for whether the barristers who have prepared, prepared the case are um, available. And so um, it has two effects. First of all, the people who are doing all the preparation work aren't being paid to do it. And the people who are then presenting the case are getting the case the night before, which, as you can imagine, if you're about to um, do some public speaking involving life-changing issues for people, is very stressful. Um, yes. And um, it, it is, I'm afraid, a feature of life. It always has been a feature of life at the criminal bar, but I think it is now getting far worse as a consequence of um, everybody having to try and pull together to get through the vast backlog. I know it's definitely stressful because I've been in a situation before where I've been given a case um, on the morning of a, of a trial, told to drive to a court, never met the client before, haven't been able to read the papers before getting to court, and the magistrate expects you to get on with the case as soon as you get there. It is incredibly stressful. It, it is. Um, and um, the, and from, from the defendant's point of view, it doesn't have the feel of fairness. Um, you... Um, you can imagine if you spent hours with your solicitor or barrister and then you're told, oh, in fact, your case is coming at short notice. Nobody you've ever met before is going to be there. 
um, of course, you're immediately going to have a crisis of confidence about those who are going to be representing you. It's absolutely natural to do so. You will think, but hold on, I spent hours with my solicitor. They know exactly what I'm saying. Why aren't they here? Um, and um, it does make it a stressful situation for everybody involved. But from the lawyer's point of view, it certainly makes for a stressful day at court, that's for sure. And can I ask, because you mentioned a couple of times there in, in that response, this uh, backlog that um, has also been in the press quite a lot recently. And it's quite often tethered to the notion of it being a, a, a consequence of covid um, what's your view on that? Well, part of it is a consequence of COVID. Um, however, part of it is not. Um, the number of outstanding criminal cases at the beginning of COVID was about 30,000, I think, in Crown Court. Um, and um, it's now double that. Um, so the backlog has, was already in existence. And that was because um, the courts were not using the court estate effectively. Um, the number of um, part-time judges that were being used had been slashed. And, um, and so it wasn't unusual even before the pandemic for people to wait two years, three years for um, uh, allegations to be investigated and then tried before the Crown Court. Now, um, matters are unsurprisingly far, far worse. The Crown Court didn't sit at all for the best part of eight to ten weeks during COVID. Um, but even now, um, many court centres are only able to do two trials instead of five or, uh, or just one or two cases at a time. Um, and the, um, thankfully, um, uh, part-time judges are being used far more frequently in order to try and reduce the backlog. But it is a vast hill to climb. And of course, one of the problems is that part-time judges are experienced solicitors and barristers. And those experienced solicitors and barristers are then no longer able to do the cases they're meant to be doing if they're sitting as judges. So um, a, a huge investment um, has already been made by the government. Um, and uh, they've announced further money in the budget last week. But I'm afraid it's probably... Uh, just a drop in the ocean, um, and it does not. It would not surprise me at all if um, we are still trying cases um, in a couple of years' time that relate to pre-pandemic um, events. Um, I was prosecuting a case this morning, an allegation of burglary going back to 2019. Mm. Um, so that's already um, two years old. And um, the trial won't happen for another six months. Um, and that is absolutely not unusual at all. Yeah. No, I've read, I've read instances of cases not being listed until 2024. Yes. Um, well, I haven't yet got anything in my diary for 2024, but um, I have, I think, got some things in my diary for 2023. It's absolutely crazy. The fact that some defendants committed these offences, alleged to have committed these offences as, as a youth, and they go through three, four years later as an adult and get tried for the same offence. Yes, exactly. Um, and that is, uh, well, the, it, it is unfairness that is um, currently endemic. Um, it's unfair on anybody to wait three or four years with a serious allegation hanging over them. 
Yeah. It is particularly unfair if you are a youth and you're at a time of your life where you are still maturing um, and you can't move on. You don't know whether or not to go to university. You don't know whether or not to finish the course you're on. Um, but it's also unfair on victims or witnesses, mm. um, people who uh, want to be able to forget what happened to them and know that the person who did it has, has been found guilty and punished. They don't want to be constantly getting reminders from the uh, witness service that they may have to go to court one day in June next year for something that happened back in 2019. But I'm afraid that that is um, what is happening at the moment. So after you've met a client initially at the first meeting and then go to court, in the magistrate's court, it'll be a first appearance, so entering a, a plea. Um, what happens in the Crown Court? Well, um, the, the Crown Court um, has a more rigid list than the Magistrates' Court. Um, very often in the Magistrates' Court, you'll have 40 to 50 cases all listed at the same time. So you'll have 40 to 50 people all turning up, all wanting to be in court at the same time, which means you can get to court at 10 o'clock and still be there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon waiting for your um, case to be called on. The Crown Court um, has a uh, normally a timed listing system, so you'll be told the time at which you need to appear. And then the sort of hearing, it will depend on what happens next, but if it's a plea and trial preparation hearing, that is exactly what it says on the tin. The defendant will be asked what his plea is. If he pleads guilty, then the court can move to look at um, how he should be sentenced. If he pleads not guilty, then the court makes directions for um, when the trial should be and will set out a timetable for dealing with the case, which will involve telling the prosecution when they have to serve their case by, telling the defence when they have to um, tell the prosecution what their defence is, and generally making sure that the witnesses are going to be available for the trial days, uh, etc. Um, so that, that initial hearing, um, plea and trial preparation hearing, is, is key to um, the ongoing case management. And that first hearing triggers the, the deadline and or the timelines for a defence statement to be served? Yeah. Um, and gives you the trial the trial date? Yes. So, um, as it were, at that first hearing, you will, by the time you leave the hearing, you will have a picture of when the trial is going to be and um, when it is that the defence are going to have to deal with their obligations to um, disclose their defence to the, the Crown and so on. And then you turn up at trial, um, probably six, six months plus after um, the first appearance, and you're faced with 12, 12 members of the jury. And do you find that a good system that we have in this country? I do. Um, I, I know that some people have reservations about it, um, but um, I personally think that it is certainly the least worst system you could have. Um, because the, 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 the problem, in inverted commas, with judges is that they will ha have a diet of criminal cases um, that will have occupied them for many years and they will have heard a lot of stories before um, and will potentially not have a particularly open mind. Um, 
juries, uh, in my experience, are very good at following directions. If they are told not to take account of something, they won't. Um, I know um, from um, of many cases that, um, for example, a defendant's previous convictions will come up and um, you might think to yourself, oh dear, this is absolute curtains. Um, it isn't. And it isn't because the jury are properly directed about how to approach previous convictions or silence in interview. And um, I think that um, they are as well placed, if not far better placed, to judge whether someone's telling the truth or not. Um, and after all, this isn't some um, version of would I lie to you? Um, but it does have elements of, of, of that. Um, people saying what they say happened to them or what they did, and other people trying to catch them out. Um, and it's very difficult to tell whether you're a professional lawyer or an ordinary man in the street who is lying and who isn't. Um, and it's far better, I think, um, that the public be invested in their justice system. Hmm. And have you ever been called? Have you ever been called for jury service? Um, I have been called for jury service. Um, the jury um, summonsing officer was horrified when I turned up at the Canterbury Crown Court and asked what on earth I thought I was doing there. Um, and um, because it was my local court where I knew absolutely everybody, um, uh, eventually I did not sit on the jury, which is uh, a source of. Uh, regret, but um, uh, I'm sure it was a great relief to the resident judge that I was out of the jury retiring area. But so your experience of uh, yeah jury persons has been sounds like been very positive because it's something that I think part of this podcast its intention is to be quite educative. I think that there are areas of the criminal justice system that remain um, unilluminated to to the mass of people in the country, luckily, because they don't have to interact with it. Yes, uh, I think when some people um, come into contact with the criminal justice system for the first time, in fact, I say some people, most people, who come into contact with the criminal justice system for the first time are utterly shocked. They are astonished at the delays. They are aghast at some of the procedures. Um, and I remember from um, when I was a solicitor speaking to people in police stations um, who were saying, well, when can I go home? And, well, you can't. Um, and how long can the police keep you for? Well, they can keep you for an entire day um, plus, depending on how serious things are. Um, and um, for an ordinary person coming into contact with the law for the first time, it's very bewildering. Um, but it, it is, I think, really important that um, people do understand how their justice system works. And it, it is always depressing to hear about people saying that they haven't called police about X incident or Y incident because it will it will never result in an arrest or they won't catch anyone or or that they're ashamed or embarrassed or whatever it is. Um, 
people need to be feel that the justice system is there for them. Um, and I think jury service is quite an important part of that. Um, and um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of it, you can tell. And through, through this podcast series, we're taking a fictional character um, by the name of Kelly, who's not been involved with the criminal justice system before. If you were to meet someone that's never been it, through the justice system, how would you explain the process to them? Well, um, I suppose in a sense it depends when you're meeting them. Um, if, if you were meeting them um, in advance of going to an interview at the police station, obviously you would start with that as to um, how, um, how important that part of the procedure is to, to what happens next. Um, when I tend to meet people, of course, it, it's normally um, by the time they've been charged and um, and sent to the Crown Court, and so I start from there. But um, I think the, the important thing to do is to be able to give somebody a complete overview of, 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 the, of the procedure from cradle to grave, as it were. Um, so if you are meeting somebody before they've been interviewed or arrested, you need to explain to them what that part of the procedure is about and then what happens after that and what happens if they go to court um, and and so on um, and there, there's a vast amount of information for a lay person to take in um, because as i've said and as is obvious um, a lot of people simply have no idea about um, what uh, being prosecuted involves um, and uh, how the state can impose bail conditions on you that might last for years, uh, how you might be under investigation for years, not just months. Um, and I, I'm sure that you have dealt with cases where uh, investigations have been going on for, for 12 months, 24 months. Um, I've recently been making representations in a case where the investigation has been going on for five years. And, it, and it's impossible to manage people's expectations when you've got delays like that. That that's that's what our job is about. It is about managing expectations and um, uh, and keeping clients informed. And things have got worse in terms of investigation since bail wasn't used as freely by the police. So people are now released on investigation, which has no time limit at all. Yes, um, I mean, it was a complete own goal by. Um, it was as a result of um, Paul Gambaccini um, and the investigation into him by the police, where he was quite unfairly kept subject to bail conditions for years while they investigated the utterly untrue allegations that had been made against him. And so, yes, great news. People are no longer kept subject to bail conditions for years um, while under investigation. But instead, they, they have no idea sometimes um, that the investigation is continuing. Um, and the investigations just sort of um, completely stagnate because there's no return date for the person to go back to the police station. And that's why, uh, as I've just indicated, there are cases that have literally been going on for years. I think another thing you tend to find now is that most people have a smartphone or an iPad. And so when matters are being investigated, it takes at least nine months, 12 months for the police to actually interrogate those devices. Yes, um, that is, um, a, a, it's a, a wonderful investigative tool. 
because we all walk around with these, which are effectively diaries in which we they tell us exactly where we've been, they tell us who we've talked to, they tell us what we've done. Um, they're a wonderful investigative tool for the police to have um, and to get their hands on. But of course, they also contain a vast amount of information and they simply uh, are not enough um, forensic examiners of telephones to, for, for that sort of evidence to be obtained quickly. And even if it is obtained quickly, um, your average mobile phone contains, what is it, 40,000 pages of data? Um, someone's got to look at that, and then someone's got to um, sort out what it might be evidential and what isn't. Um, and um, there's a lot of criticism, of course, of um, uh, intrusive police investigation, particularly of victims um, or complainants, social media, mm -hmm. things like that. But what do you want the police to do? Do you want the police to investigate crime? and find out who's guilty and who isn't, or do you just want them to believe any, anybody who makes an allegation? Well, there have, there have been cases recently where matters have been, or cases have been thrown out and dismissed because text messages haven't been disclosed to defence. Yes, um, and th that sort of thing really has, has got to stop. Um, and the, the problem is that there is not enough money being thrown at um, these these issues to allow the police to have sufficient manpower to um, conduct the investigations um, and the number of man hours, or indeed for the defence to be able to to review the material themselves. It's not a problem that's going to get better either. No, and it's not so much the evidence that's on the phone. It's it's where a, a phone can actually locate someone in terms of cell site analysis as well well exactly it's not only what conversation have you had it's where were you when you were having that conversation um a, a phone can betray its user um or indeed prove that the user was nowhere near where they um are alleged to have been um one mustn't always view it as being uh, evidence against the person it can be very very powerful evidence um, of an alibi or, uh, or that um, somebody did not do or say what they are alleged to have done. So if, if we turn back to the trial, the trial itself, so the jury, the jury have been sworn in, um, the prosecution go first in terms of um, presenting their evidence to the court and you get to cross-examine each of their witnesses. Do you have any key hint, uh, tips that you would use or pass on to someone when cross-examining? Keep it short. Is, is my rule of thumb. Um, and prepare. Preparation is absolutely key. And that's, that's why I say keep it short, because a well-prepared cross-examination, in most cases, obviously some cases are very complicated. There's an awful lot you need to ask. But in most relatively straightforward cases, you have nothing to gain by asking questions for hours on end. Yes, yeah, so I've seen um, advocates in court cross-examining and you watch them and they get the key piece of evidence that they want to get from the prosecution witness. And at that point, you're thinking to yourself, sit down, you've done enough work now. And they keep pushing and then the witness corrects themselves. 
the, 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 the most effective bit of cross-examination I, I saw was actually in this courtroom, in this court building in Maidstone Crown Court. It was during a very long trial. And the first 15 minutes of cross-examination of the first defendant were absolutely devastating. The problem was that the cross-examination then continued for another day and a half, by which time the jury actually started quite liking the defendant. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and how, how do you address the jury? Do you, do you view it as acting? Um, do you act up to the jury or are you just yourself in court? Um, well, that, that, I suppose, is rather like asking whether I'm acting now. Um, <laughs> no, there's, there's an element of performance, of course there is. Um, you have to project, so there, and there is therefore an element of theatricality. And if you are um, making a speech, you want to take your audience with you. And so standing and reading something very slavishly and um, like a robot is not going to cause anyone to prick up their ears and pay any attention to what you're saying at all. Uh, and so I do try and deliver a, a speech to a jury in an interesting way and, um, and in a way that is as attractive as possible. Do you tend to throw out any any one-liners? Because I've, I've read about advocates who put Star Wars quotes into their closing, or they they do their closing through poetry. Well, um, I, I have. Well, you, you always try and look for something that is going to resonate with um, with a jury, um, and what you normally try and do is sort of take something from the prosecution case and weave it into um, your speech. That in a way that somehow makes it appear um, less cogent than um, than the prosecution would have you have you believe, or um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I've quoted um, uh, from the Smuggler's Poem by Roger Kipling in a smuggling case before. Um, the uh, last case I defended, I spent most of my speech referring to my client as a Smurf, um, <laughs> but that was because the prosecution had had told the jury that what he was doing was called smurfing, um, which is a form of money laundering. Well, it was their mistake to use that term because it meant that I could say that my client was a small, insignificant little blue man who didn't need to know what he was doing, and he was indeed acquitted. Um, so what, what you mustn't do, I think, is try and turn it into some um, intellectual exercise of um, showing how terribly well educated you are or anything like that. That's not going to impress anybody. In fact, it will alienate an awful lot of people. Um, far better to do it in, a, in an attractive way using um, uh, cultural references that the jury will know. Um, so you know, ev everyone knows who the Smurfs are. Well, they certainly did. You'd hope so, you'd hope so. And speaking of cultural references, have you uh, seen TV or film representations of uh, barristers in, in England and Wales and felt that they were accurate or any that you thought were particularly inaccurate? Um, I found myself unable to watch Judge John Deed. 
because it caused me to have conniptions. <laughs> the, the judge going out and conducting his own inquiries and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, uh, what's the one with pathologists? Um, sign of sign witness. Um, you know, if you have pathologists doing that in most murders, um, there'd be uh, abusive process applications, <laughs> state of proceedings, left, right, and centre. Um, but um, there, there are others that are, are rather better. I particularly enjoyed Silk, um, although I would have to say that I'm not sure the representation of the clerks was very fair. I have to say that because otherwise my clerks will have my guts started. Um, but um, yeah, no, that was that was a good one. Um, and but no, I, I I don't spend a lot of time watching um, televisual representations of uh, of what I do. Um, in my in my professional life, I've generally speaking had enough of courtroom drama by the time I get home in the evening. So, is that the way that you ha try and have a work life balance? Just try and switch off after after you leave the courtroom. Yes, no, it, it it's um, increasingly um, important, I think, um, because of the stresses I mentioned earlier about uh, the volume of work at the moment and um, the number of cases that are returned, given from one barrister to another at the last minute. Um, it's a stressful job, and you need to be able to um, switch off from that. Um, and you know, I think it's something that everybody learnt during lockdown as well. Is um, is there more to life than work? Um, and it's it, it's better to um, have time to prepare a case properly and to do it well and far less stressful um, than it is to be running around like a headless chicken um, trying to um, do as much work as possible. So. Um, Yes, no, I do like to be able to switch off. And in fact, that's something that I found far easier to do at the bar than I was as a solicitor when, um, as you guys will know, you're very often on call 365 days of the year, 24-7. Um, so, um, no, it's, uh, it, it's good to be able to have some downtime and do stuff that is not at all related to, um, to uh, criminal trials. And in terms of in terms of chambers, I mean, from the outside, people know know about wears a wig and gown, and that you belong to a, a set of chambers. So, what what's the actual makeup inside? Do you have your own room? Um, what's your relationship like with other barristers? Well, um, there are um, quite a few chambers um, uh, across the country, but predominantly in in London or other large cities is where you'll find them, um, and they are made up. Um, differently. Um, my chambers uh, deals with criminal defence and prosecution and extradition and family work and also um, proceeds of crime and asset recovery. And there are some barristers who do all of those, some barristers who do um, only one or two areas. Um, uh, personally, I only deal with um, criminal defence and prosecution and to a lesser extent um, asset recovery when it um, arises from the proceedings I've, I've dealt with at court. Um, in the old days, um, before um, electronic files, people would go into chambers every evening to collect their papers for the next day. Um, quite clearly, that does not happen anymore. 
No, I, I remember wrapping them up in a pink ribbon and sending them off by DX to uh, Chambers. Exactly. I'm, um, nowadays, you'll be lucky to get anything you need. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, uh, whereas you know, 15, 20 years ago, you might have expected a barrister to have to go into Chambers three or four nights a week. Um, now, um, you probably only go in once or twice a year, a lot of people. Do you find then, um, in a pre-COVID world, I wonder the difference between in the work environment, obviously solicitors, we work as part of a firm, part of a department, it's quite, it's quite collegial. Um, barristers are obviously self-employed, although connected to a particular chambers usually. Um, yeah, how, how have you found the different challenges that you are much more autonomous, I suppose, in career as a barrister? That there is a, a collegiate atmosphere, of course, in chambers. If I've got a problem in a case, there are a whole load of people I can phone up and ask, what do you think we should do about this? How do you think we should, we should approach that? Mm -hmm. um, and um, that is, that, that's one of the strengths of chambers. Um, but I, I think equally, things have moved on hugely from years ago where you would have those conversations face to face and pop down the pub and have a drink together and all this sort of stuff. Um, that just doesn't happen anymore for obvious reasons. Um, but um, we're all still in contact with each other and we can still bounce ideas off each other. But I suppose in a sense it's more formalised because you're not just bumping into somebody and saying, what do you think about this? You're actually able to make the effort to pick up the phone and give them a ring. Um, but uh, no, I, we do all like to, to help each other, and you know, there are children's WhatsApp groups where you can sort of say, "Look, I've got this particular problem. Anyone got any ideas?" And then they'll go off and uh, give you a call or whatever. Mm. Um, whereas um, when I was a solicitor, I was only a solicitor in relatively small firms, um, so you wouldn't um, you wouldn't have that pool of people to speak to, but you would have barristers, so you would then. Um, you could give a barrister a ring and say, look, just informally, I've got X, Y, and Z problem. What do you think? Or we're in the middle of a police interview and things are going horribly wrong. What are your views about whether or not we should continue answering questions? Or I've got this trial tomorrow. How do you think I should approach this? Um, you know, we're a, we are a, um, a professional communicators and, um, it's always good to talk to other people, see how they would approach things. And talking about cases going terribly wrong, what's the worst experience you've had in court? Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Um, uh, this wasn't a case that went terribly wrong. It was something I don't wish on anyone else. Um, during lockdown, I had a case in the Court of Appeal um, where we were appealing sentence and the um, appeal related to the amount of credit that the defendant should have got for pleading guilty after he had absconded and he was apprehended then after everybody else's trial. Anyway, um, I was all ready to argue that um, it should be at least 25% credit. And then on the morning of the hearing, I got an email from the um, Clark to one of the um, judges who was going to be presiding saying, are you aware of this authority? 
that authority was authority for the proposition that all of my arguments were rubbish. <laughs> and um, I was not aware of it. And uh, I, so I received this, whatever it was, about 45 minutes before the hearing. And um, yeah, it was, it was not a happy experience. It's a daunting experience at the best of times of the Court of Appeal. So glad actually that I was appearing remotely because if I had been there in the building, I would have felt absolutely awful. What, what can you do in that situation? Can you try and argue that the precedent doesn't apply? Well, I, I, I manfully tried to do that, um, <laughs> but got nowhere. Um, well, you, know, you look at it and you say, is this the same? Isn't it the same? Um, uh, I was able to point out that the guidelines on credit for a guilty plea had changed since then and so on, but I'm afraid I was, um, I was scaling a mountain that was far too high. My, my experience with the Court of Appeal was incredibly daunting. Um, you're presenting and addressing three judges and the way the courtroom's set up, when you stand up, you're at eye level with them. So they're looking at you the whole time, the three of them, firing questions at you. And you also know that they are all three of them very, very clever. And they've yes. read all of the papers and they've all read all of the authorities and um, yeah, no, you need to be on the top of your game. Every time I go to the appeal, and I don't go there very often, um, I like to think that's because things don't go wrong very often. But every time I do go there, I always go and treat myself to something afterwards because it is <laughs> such a, 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 an experience. I don't blame you. And it almost feels as if they've made their decision up before you started speaking because as soon as they walk out and come back in, they've got a couple of page decision to read. Yes, they do appear to have made their minds up before you address them, don't they? Yes, every time. <laughs> um, and on the flip side, what's the funniest or best experience you've had in a courtroom? Oh, um, oh gosh. Try and think. Um, and there, there's, there is nothing beats um, an enjoyable cross-examination. Um, and there is also nothing better than getting the, the right result. Um, but my, um, my uh, favourite question in cross-examination was of a man who accused my client of robbery. And after an application had been made to the judge, my first question in cross-examination was, Mr. So-and-so, would it be fair to say that you are the sort of man who steals from his own grandmother. To which the answer was, what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> Fantastic. It, it, so it was, uh, I was very pleased with that question. Um, but <laughs> of course, he did indeed have convictions for stealing from his own grandmother. Wow. <laughs> Questions like that don't come along all the time, I have to say. Brilliant. No, it, it, what what is satisfying about this job is um, is when things go right and they go well and you get the right result for the client. There's um, really nothing better than that, and that is um, that's what it's about. What do you find the most rewarding aspect of your job, or how do you see it? Um, it's trying to see your way through um, a often an absolute forest of evidence and thinking to yourself, what is the way through this? 
how are we going to get to the other side and get the, the right result? And um, trying to, um, and also writing a speech. Writing a speech is, a, is something I enjoy. It's um, the power of language to persuade people. It's an extraordinary thing. And um, trying to think of the right words, um, trying to think of attractive an analogies, not involving Smurfs, um, <laughs> and trying to um, yeah come up with um, trying to um, come up with the right words that will um, persuade people of what your client's case is, and speaking for people who um, can't speak for themselves in the same way, and it's a it's a great um, it's a great thing to be able to do to speak on someone else's behalf. It's a great privilege, um, and uh, so I think that's probably what I enjoy most. Have you ever had someone sent to prison as a sentence and felt the prison isn't right for them because they have? underlying issues such as alcohol dependency drugs that should be addressed rather than sending them to prison i'm afraid that i have um and i you see it every day you see every day the consequences of um drug abuse alcohol abuse mental health problems um the vast majority of people who appear in criminal courts have got drug alcohol or mental health problems or all three and um, sometimes people with those problems have to be sent to prison um, to protect the public um, sometimes people with those problems have to be sent to prison because they have rejected every single opportunity they've been given to try and address the problems leaves <laughs> I'm afraid it's, um, it's something you see on a daily basis um, and uh, it, it is depressing um, the uh, effects that those three things can can have on on human beings, and um, that it isn't a question of being able to say, take this methadone, you will come off heroin, or stop drinking and you won't have a problem anymore, or go and see a doctor and your mental health problems will get better. It just doesn't work like that, and people, I'm afraid, with those problems do tend to end up coming back to court again and again until eventually, the, hopefully, the, the cycle is broken. Um, and um, one would always like to think that prison is a last resort. Um, I'm not sure it always is, and it may frequently be used where there might be other better community alternatives, but um, they've got to be com good community alternatives um, if somebody has done something quite serious that otherwise would mean they should go to prison for a long time. Yeah, it's just that it is a cycle. You do see the same people coming through the courts because their underlying issues aren't being dealt with. Yes, and, and that's one of the principal things that you um, deal with when you're looking at um, persuading a judge not to send somebody to prison. If they've got an under, underlying alcohol or drug issue, then um, please, judge, let's address that, which will reduce the, um, the future risk to, to this individual, but also to, to their future victims. And, you know, education is incredibly important when it comes to that as well. Um, educating people about, um, uh, about the, the rights of others um, and, um, and how their actions impinge on them. 
of course, some of that it comes down to maturity as well. Um, you know, 18 and 17 year olds don't have the same sense of responsibility as 40, a lot of 40, 50 year olds. It's just part of growing up. Um, and um, so, yes, I, I'm a big advocate of avoiding custody if at all possible. Um, but equally, and one has to be realistic about this, there are other people for whom prison is the only answer. Oliver, thank you so much for your time um, explaining what you do as a barrister and hopefully it will allow people that aren't familiar with the justice system an insight into your work and the daily routine, really. Well, thank you very much indeed for, for inviting me to come along and um, I look forward to, to hearing the, the rest of the series. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you.